the the cake that we all have to share that's bigger than ever the problem is that the way we have been sharing the cake so far is actually collapsing around us so we have to reinvent basically how we distribute income in society First of all, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. What's the first thing that strikes you as the end to the world? Wow. All right. Um, yes, yeah, so important to understand is uh, so my world, it takes place, uh, my book takes place in 2048. Um, it takes place both in, in the US and, and in Sweden. So it depends a bit, I guess, on whereabouts in the world you enter. Um, but we can take Stockholm, for instance. So. Um, I think I picture the world. Um, so technology has changed the job market a lot in my world, uh, meaning that you know people to a much uh, larger extent are actually uh, you know available um, daily. They can roam the streets and do whatever they want because a lot fewer people are actually you know at their day job as they they are today. I think. Also, you would notice uh, a lot of the automated vehicles that are uh, driving around the city. Um, they, you would notice that there's much fewer cars parked on the streets. Um, you would probably notice the lack of normal stores. Uh, so there's a lot fewer stores around. Um, there's some showrooms still available, like especially high-end stores where you know people can enter the stores and try things out, but it's, it's more like showrooms than, than it is today. And, and much of the trying out process is, is done through technology with augmented reality instead to allow for a kind of larger directory of, or larger, a wider, wider directory of, of products to buy, uh, than you can hold in a physical store. Um, but many of the normal stores that you would expect today, they are actually missing. Um, it also depends a lot, I guess, where in the city you enter. Um, I have scenes taking place on in parts of the city that is you know, not that cozy today, that are completely transformed through just construction and, and the general growth of the city. Um, but um, uh, uh, let's leave it at that. That's probably a good starting point, just like the expectation. You would, you would probably notice a lot of drones flying around as well making small scale like point to point deliveries it feels like we're looking at as you're saying also with the timeline where it's one step in the future but also it seems like a lot of the things we are discussing today in the technological world have been implemented and how has this how has this changed people yeah so i, I think uh, i mean sci-fi fans they might think that my world has changed a lot less than they're used to when they're reading science fiction i've, I've tried to create a book that is accessible for people not normally reading science fiction so uh, it's been described by reviewers and others as, as a world that is easy to recognize while still pretty different and the subject that i'm pretty curious about and what i've tried to explore is basically all right if we have this this new world where you know, we've had to figure out an alternative on how to provide for people. If, if you can't expect for people to provide for themselves, um, if, you, if, if they can't take that responsibility, we have to basically reconstruct the economy and, and somehow found, fund universal basic income. And that's obviously like solving the problem from a material sense of, of, of the problem. Um, but what I'm curious about is what then happens to people? Um, how do you construct a universal basic income system that feels fair to people. Uh, probably what I've discovered through this process is that it's, it's pretty hard to just, you know, hand out the money, everybody gets an equal share. That would be perceived as unfair by a lot of people because, you know, people want to have some kind of control over their income. And of course you can, as a citizen, you can still provide value to society. Uh, like why, why do you educate yourself if that's, it doesn't lead to a higher paying job? but society would be very dangerous if you didn't educate yourself. So what I've created is a system, like I've created two universal basic income societies. One, one is kind of a US flavored version and one is more of a Scandinavian version. And the Scandi version is, is um, 
they've created this uh, kind of beefed up educational system that was originally intended to kind of uh, incentivize people to uh, gain new competencies to you know stay attractive on the job markets. But as as the years went by, it turned out that the system became increasingly more of a kind of final station and um, the name of the system is, is the knowledge ladder or kunskapstrappan in Swedish. And um, essentially what's happening there is that, you know, if, if you want to stay at home in your sofa and play Xbox all day, that's fine. And you can stay on the kind of basic level of income. But if you want to keep, uh, you know, doing constructive stuff, if you want to educate yourself or if you want to create value for society, you can climb the ladder and thus affect your level of, of basic income. Um, and thus, you know, have some kind of control over your your income, which kind of creates a sensation of that the system is probably it, it, it's perceived as more fair by people, I would expect. Um, but then again, you know, the, 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 the like really interesting stuff that I'm curious about is what happens to people when they're in this situation. Like I, I, this is deeply personal for me. I, you know, I built an IT company and and in, in a. In a way, I kind of climbed out the climbed out of the squirrel wheel uh, ahead of time, and and I think that people generally they they don't really understand how hard that is. Like if you if you don't have to work to pay rent, and you can't thus fool yourself that work is is the meaning of of life, then the problem of finding meaning is actually much more challenging than it used to be, and that is what I expect for people to face when we kind of transition into universal basic income. So that's the subject that I'm exploring in a lot of detailed ways through many different characters in the books. Like some people, of course, think this is great. Finally, they are free to you know, do whatever they want, and it's actually great for you know entrepreneurship as well because people, you know, have it's it's much easier to bootstrap a, a startup if you if you're provided for through basic income. Um, but then again, there's also a lot of people who you know feel that as they climb that ladder, you know, they hit the glass ceiling and you know they can't climb further and they they lose hope and you know other people just struggle with finding any meaning in in this entire situation at all like why why do you keep doing research why do you educate yourself if it's never meant to actually lead to anything that is financially you know relevant yeah in a fashion i mean your your book is very much like an exploration i think on ubi which i think is a very it's a very hot topic and it's super interesting and also then looking at like you've now described the Scandinavian version and the American version you have a different one and I know that in your coming books you're exploring other countries if we look at the American version which you have made like a stark difference to the Swedish like knowledge ladder where educating yourself would lead to higher UBI um, and being more quote-unquote purposeful for the state in one sense I guess but or not for the state I guess it's more making yourself uh, more educated is viewed by the Scandinavian system to be increasing the probabilities of you being more useful. Yeah, and also probably a, a better citizen that is, you know, more robust in the sense that you can't be easily fooled into, you know, voting for populist parties and stuff if you have a better understanding of the world. So in that sense, it's very important to like have people keep educating themselves, even if it's not meant to lead to work. Yeah. So before actually going to the American one, then would you say that there are in this package of the of the latter steps here, are there stuff like mental stability, health, exercise, helping your neighbors, as we've seen in like the the Chinese social credit system, or is it only education that is is uh, is measured? So I've I've pictured it as primarily focused on on education. Um, I've uh, intentionally kind of stayed vague in in the sense that people can read into it what they what they what they feel like. In my in my view, it's it's not at all similar to the Chinese version or the Chinese system where you're supposed to incentivize or gamify, you know, a lot of other aspects of being a, a good citizen that is loyal to the government. Um, I'm I'm intending to include a Chinese system in, in book two that will picture that, but it's also I mean this is it's, this is a planned trilogy, and the first book was intended to really. Um, explore this what is the meaning of life what is the reason to be if for us humans if we you know can't fool ourselves that work is the reason and and the kind of there's a parallel there to how like the the story is is all about super intelligence and how to construct a, a safe 
super intelligent AI, like how, how do you control a super intelligent machine? And there's, there's this nice parallel between the two problems that we have to kind of figure out a reason to be for the super intelligent AI while struggling more than ever with finding out our, our own reason to be. Because, you know, in a way you have to design a motivation for the AI for it to do anything. But then, then again, that all boils down to the control problem of the super intelligent AI. So what, what kind of motivation we program into that computer is going to probably determine whether it's, you know, beneficial or not. So in that sense, like the first book was intended to, like, as you know, who read the book, like I've tried to create a kind of page turner thriller fiction book that people it's it's accessible for people that aren't really up to speed on these subjects from from before they aren't perhaps even interested about it, just looking to be entertained but as a side effect of reading a book they will actually wise up to a lot of these matters and i wanted to like between the lines then explore this like what is what is actually our hunt for meaning what does it look like in this future world um but the then i for the subsequent books i have like other uh other existential questions that I'm exploring in the same way. So for the second book, for instance, I'm exploring the subject of like, if you, if you don't have to die, do you really want to live forever? So I find that it's a polarizing question when I ask people. It is, it, it is, it is absolutely. And I think, and I think that it like, and then looking at the, this world, because I mean, we, like, if we go into the world, we not only what's described to the, to the reader, but like the full world, would you feel, is this evenly distributed? Because, I mean, you have UBI, and now you describe Scandinavia. We're going to look at the American system soon. Is the world all on UBI? Or is it so that certain parts of the world have it and others don't? Is it viewed the same way? I've built kind of a macro world um, that is visible to some extent in the first book, and it's going to be more visible, or other parts of that macro world is, is visible to the readers in, in the subsequent books. Um, there's There's kind of this, you know, the Western world is still shaped around some kind of Pax Americana, um, you know, where where most of the economies have introdu introduced UBI in some sense. There's kind of a the Euro European continent is, from my point of view, we have a kind of closer collaboration than we have today because we have to move that way in in terms of transforming taxation to be able to you know tax capital to provide the the means that is necessary for introducing UBI from my point of view. And that's very hard to do on a kind of nation state level. Um, then you have America, US, which is uh, still separate to EU, but still as of today, kind of part of the same cultural context and, and similar in terms of system. But then uh, there's bigger transformations and changes happening on in other parts of the world where, of course, China is a lot more important economically than it is even today. Like they are gonna keep on growing in importance. And what's interesting when you explore what happens to economy in the world when you transition to UBI is that a, a, a nation's gross product isn't really a function of how many inhabitants it has anymore. In fact, you have a kind of reverse effect. If if production is almost ex like completely automated, it, it boils down to basically access to resources rather than access to people. And... Um, in fact, a, a country could be more competitive if it could, you know, keep its population down. So uh, in a sense, I, I picture a world where um, it would make financial sense to limit how many kids people can have and uh, like how they can plan their families. And I predict that China is probably in a better position to impose such controls on its population than the Western world. It, it, it's in pretty stark contrast to the Western ideas of, of you know, human rights and, uh, you know, individual liberties. China could cheat uh, economically by controlling its populations with, with rules that the Western world would, you know, be very opposed to introducing. I guess you could solve it, though, with your UBI. You could be saying that. I mean, now you've said that the Swedish system is mainly based on education, but I guess you could say that you get it like it's deducted for every kid you have or like you get an UBI for a family and you don't get more per child you have. So that it sort of limits you, like not limits you, but like if you had fewer children, you would just have more means. Yeah, exactly. And and what I'm, what I'm predicting is that the Western world would shy away from such controls, which would actually be a... a 
negative uh, um, effect in, in the competition against other nations that are better at introducing such things. So I see that as kind of a seed to a trade war between the Western and the Eastern world, uh, where uh, so that you have two major blocks uh, economically in the world, where you have the Western world and the Eastern world, and uh, China is using its, uh, you know, great room for reform now to kind of uh, bribe their way into control of natural resources elsewhere in the world. So much like what's already going on today with Chinese uh, money coming, flowing into Africa and helping build those economies. The Belt and Roads Initiative. Exactly. So uh, countries elsewhere in the world, they could kind of choose to attach themselves to the Chinese way by introducing Chinese rules around population control and thus get means necessary to transition into UBI if they struggle to do that individually or independently. Uh, But by doing that, they kind of attach themselves to the Chinese system and become trade partners with China. And what I predict is a world where there's kind of a a great divide between the Western and the Eastern world where the the West has opted out of such controls and kind of protect and preserve their own economies. They have to then limit trade with China to basically stay competitive. Uh, So in that sense, there's there's two major blocks and you have the Arab world and Russia who's kind of struggling uh, because of of collapsing uh, oil prices basically. And you have India's, you know, kind of a, a joker in the game who's who's kind of in between the, the two blocks. So that's kind of the macro level world uh, that I'm, I'm, you know, picturing. And then you have all the kinds of proxy wars between, you know, the Western and the Eastern bloc that you would expect from basically the Cold War dynamics, but with new technology. So there's in the in the back in the like. In the backstory, there's there's these. I mean, for Star Wars fans, it's it's a great name to just have a drone wars taking place in in Africa. But where the U.S., for instance, have have discovered that okay, the more autonomous uh, Chinese drones are actually superior to the more advanced Western robots, simply because we have refused to introduce you know autonomous kill switches within the drones when, with the Western weapons. Uh, basically, we we the Chinese can just throw additional drones on on and, and and like beating out our systems through speed rather than uh through better decision making hmm, interesting and then like looking at the world and like pyramid wise um the bottom layer you're saying is that we have uh, the economy is completely automatized like the sort of the production is completely on the industry so more people would not lead to more gdp not more production really and the and the limiting resources no longer people in factories it's it's actually uh, resources. So you want a large land mass of so strategical, if you're a country, you want large land mass of strategical assets. And then you don't want to have a lot of people because that's, that's going to be a cost for you, sadly. It's a, it's a complex function, though, because it's, it's I mean, you have, you have to have the resources, but you also have to have the innovation. Mm. And innovation is probably a function still of, you know, number of people, I guess. Mm. But it's, it's still, it's a more complex, complex function than just more people is better. Uh, better education and, you know, just better, I guess, entrepreneurial spirit is really the way to go, I guess, to, to have as much innovation as possible. But if you can, if you can maintain the level of innovation with fewer people, then that would be a competitive edge economically. But of course, this must change a lot how people view themselves. Because if people view themselves as part of uh, creating the country's wealth and being useful, uh, but no, now they're no longer. And that's the cultural aspect you're, you're investigating a lot is really the question about purpose. If we look at the, the purpose, like how do people view themselves in this world? So I have I have all sorts of characters there, I guess. I have the characters who is kind of, you know, cheating by not really going into the problem because they keep on working with, with you know, jobs that are still relevant. Like I, I predict no absolute techno- technological unemployment. I just think that uh, in every like possible state the economy is, it would always be beneficial if if there's there's still jobs that requires humans and if all humans had the competences required to perform those jobs that would be an ideal state but what i'm um what i'm predicting is that the pace of change is accelerating and uh, old jobs are going to go way faster than we can basically match people to new competences so we will basically fill the group of temporarily technologically unemployed uh faster than we will be able to empty it again and at some tipping point you have to kind of backtrack on your view of it being the individual's responsibility of being unemployed rather it's a, it's a systemic problem that uh, you know it's you know as much as we would like to probably not all people 
has what it takes to be entrepreneurs or uh, you know become machine learning gurus or whatever uh, so at some point we have to figure out like how are we going to provide for the people who is like simply better catered to do other types of jobs in the in the job market today and thus are more or less irrelevant economically in the economy down the line and uh, to be to be to be honest, like I, I fear this tipping point a lot. I see no better alternative than universal basic income, but I also see it as a very big challenge for us to go through. And it kind of redefines the entire kind of contract between the citizen and the state in a very kind of terrifying way. So it's, it's, uh, it's important, like that's the entire purpose for me writing these books, that I think these matters are so complex and so hairy that we need to really think them through uh, thoroughly and uh, from my point of view, we probably have about 10 to 15 years to figure this out before the transition has to be done. So the conversation really ought to start right now. And polit political conversation needs to be about this stuff and, you know, not immigration all, all over and over again, which is completely irrelevant to what's actually already happening. Is the challenge that people are gonna, not going to be quote unquote useful. And as they're not going to be useful, is it that they're going to run out of money and therefore uh, like and then them as individuals? Or is it so that you see the, the danger happening more on a, on, a, on a country level where a lot of people will perceive not useful? They will vote for xenophobic parties that want to bring them back into 1950s and it's going to be civil war and, and essentially uh, the world want, wanting to try to go backwards. Or is the danger something else? It's like, am I reading it correctly here? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's uh, I guess it's all of the above, but it on a the priorities and from my point of view is is different. So like the material problem of how to actually provide for people, that's fairly straightforward to solve. I think how to overcome because uh, you know we the economy will just be more become more and more productive. So like the the cake that we all have to share, that's bigger than ever. The problem is that the way we have been sharing the cake so far it's actually collapsing around us. So we have to reinvent basically how we distribute income in society. Today, like most of the people are not running their own companies. They are not the owners of means of production, but they have something that is a very valuable assets. They have labor that they can sell to people that need to employ them. But if that fundamental kind of premise of how you know the liberal economy has worked since the industrial revolution collapses, then we have to figure out a completely new way to distribute it distribute income and just distributing the income through UBI that's a way of solving the material problem but then you're left with a lot of people who are irrelevant to the economy they are perhaps not starving but they are probably uh, perceiving that they have a lack of control over their lives and a lack of uh, ability to basically you know choose the trajectory of their lives they have a lot of time on their hands and they are in a position where they can easily be jealous of other people who are more fortunate in the economy uh, that can stay competitive so that is from my point of view uh, that is a premise for something that can become pretty nasty unless you figure out how to basically change the norms of society to you know be less stigmatizing about people not being productive uh, and also finding other ways of making people feel relevant to society uh, otherwise humans has a tendency to become dangerous you know if they have time on their hands and you know feel uh, unfortunate and uh, jealous and you know have a lack of control that's usually a recipe for for mischief so um, that that's what i'm really worried about and what i'm exploring and having characters you know take different routes through to summarize it mm, interesting and then looking at the american system because that is stark different from like the, the, the swedish kind of viewing it is like it's a kind of like a social democratic kind of classical scandinavian system the last years where everybody's getting ubi it's a lot about education but it's so, sort of sort of a middle model between the kind of chinese singaporean model of gold setting where like the the scandinavian model is gold setting or mostly around education not around health or being nice to your neighbors but at the same time it's a very kind of inclusive model of saying that you don't actually have to do that much to get the base level um so you're not going to be chased and try to like do more necessarily you can you can like live a comfortable life and quote-unquote risk of complacent life maybe even uh, on a very low level but then the american system as, as you sort of hinted is a stark different so let, let's go into the american system like how, how is that different like looking into academic kind of left-wing ideologists, they usually describe UBI as some kind of citizen salary where 
it's it's introduced to help people uh, or enable people to realize their kind of creative you know paths or dreams whereas the, the kind of right wing if you look at for instance milton friedman and and his teachings from i think he introduced the idea already back in the 70s or something where he spoke about negative income tax as a way of like basically if you if you don't make enough money your your net uh uh uh, net benefit, like you, you receive money from the government rather than paying taxes. Um, so, and and I, I watch or I, I look at UBI as a as a name that is, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's a label for our concept that, that encompasses all of these different ideas. It's just different. It's just an umbrella term. Yeah, Absolutely. it's an umbrella for all of it. Um, and and I've kind of tried to go back into the ideological ideological roots of each nation when I've design these systems and of course i have a being swedish i have a better understanding i guess for the, the swedish context but my view of the american way is that the a lot of people would have uh, objections to uh, a much bigger government which is uh, obviously a big problem with handing out money by, via taxes by definition the government plays a much more important role in in the distribution of income so i i painted the, the the world in a way where uh, the the basic income system in the US was first introduced in California, which I think is ideologically closer to doing that than any other part of the US. Uh, they did it uh, perhaps less to uh, uh, realize people's freedom and more about basically just uh, fending off uh, poverty and the immediate problems that poverty leads to in terms of in increasing crime and stuff. Uh, and uh, as the years went by, uh, the rest of, of you know the federal government realized that we need to have some kind of counterpart to what is, what's happening in California. So they kind of widened the, the Californian system into covering all of the U.S. While, like in a political compromise, using the introduction of UBI as also means to then uh, finally and uh, kind of close down the borders and stop immigration into the U.S. completely, as you know. A dollar to a, a dollar in UBI to a, a foreigner is a dollar not going to an American. So, um, but the the American system then is designed basically to just provide you know the very basic plate that you need to survive, uh, and that's it. The rest is on you. So, in a sense, it's just created a new starting point or uh, for for each individual where okay, I don't have to worry if I live where it's cheap and if I you know plan accordingly i can survive on just the basic income i don't have to starve but anything extra that i want i have to you know create for myself basically through entrepreneurship uh, either you know educating myself to some to, uh, to gain some competency that is still relevant on the job market or creating my own business uh, to provide any kind of additional means i want to have to have a better to live a better life um so in that sense it's more, much more focused on the kind of core aspects of the American dream. It's a way of transitioning the American dream into a context where, you know, human beings are on average not uh, competitive on the job market anymore. So you have to provide the kind of just fundamentals for people to survive in some other way. But then, you know, it's still uh, work hard and, and you can have a good life. That is still kind of an intact in a sense. Mm. Interesting. And like, and it, 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 like now when you're talking about it, it feels that you're like your view on the Scandinavian system, like you have a mixed mixed view, but it feels like you're positive about it. Whereas the American, it feels like you're kind of. I hear the sentiment of you you seeing it more a bit too crass, or, or am I reading too much into what you're saying? Uh, I think you're reading too much into it. Uh, I I really struggle. I see a lot of of benefits of the American way um, already today. Um, but I also see a lot of benefits with the Scandinavian way, and I definitely for sure see downsides with both. So it's not like I uh, strongly prefer one to the other. Um, and I think I explore many of the downsides with the Scandi system uh, through my characters, where they are kind of caught in the you know uh, web of the government system and the government's definitions of what is you know promoted for what is incentivized. So the, the American system, even in the book, is of course a lot more flexible and I think would, as of, as is already the case today, lead to more innovation. Uh, you know, 
more desperation leads to more innovation because people have to be more innovative to find a way out of their situations, right? But then again, there's also, uh, it's also a fact that desperation and suffering is of course objectively bad. So what is really the bad, you know, should you, should you judge the system by, you know, the, how, how good it is at, you know, producing top talent and, you know, the best innovations, or should you judge the system by how, uh, how worse off, like the, the people that are, mo- are are worse off, like how are they living their lives? Uh, should you measure by the po- poor or by the rich? Like that is really a, an open-ended question. And I, I don't have a good answer to that. What do you think? Like, how do you think one should judge a society? Um, I, I think I, like at, at heart, I really uh, like the, the idea in the American dream of promoting meritocracy. Uh, uh, so people should be uh, rewarded through hard work and uh, they should be rewarded for what they produce for themselves. But then again, I think if you look at the actual outcomes, uh, while the US think that it is kind of pure play meritocratic, uh, I think it, it. if you look at what the actual outcomes, it's actually a lot less meritocratic than many of the European states, simply because it seems to have a bigger impact on the lives you lead if you're coming out of a rich family that can provide you with you know, a great college education and stuff. So I think you should look at, I, I think inequality is objectively uh, bad. Like it's, it's, if you can have a system that is more egalitarian and that everybody has the same starting conditions. So regardless of whether you're born into a poor family or a rich family, you can still you know, create a good life. That is, I think, the core of what I really appreciate. So I appreciate the dream in the in America about being meritocratic, but I think it, uh, in just judging by outcomes, I think that perhaps you need to uh, introduce more of kind of the welfare ideas coming out of the Western Europe uh, to actually achieve that in practice. Um, so in that sense, I, I I hope you can hear that I'm kind of torn in between these two, you know, two ways of, of shaping society. But it's interesting to I mean, it, it's like, opti- are you optimizing for the upside or, or optimizing to for uh, increasing the or decreasing the downside, so to say, but also, yeah. I think that in one way, I think that a government's role, I think it in the more European way, I guess, is to evenly distribute uh, luck or to be to like, actually to get rid of unluckiness. It's like, you know, as you said, it's like, um, I think those two are very different. Is like, or is your choice, is your goal to kind of put a clamp on the top and like distribute luck if you're born in with good genes and a great family with great wealth, with great opportunities, should you distribute mm-hmm. that, uh, like cap it? Or should you make sure that the bottom end is that there nobody can be extraordinarily unlucky? And I think that's, it's, I mean, there's also, there's always a tension in that. Yeah, and there's there's all sorts of different kinds of lotteries in here. Of course, it's it's a matter of luck if you're born into a poor family or a rich family. But it's also a matter of luck whether you are, uh, you know, rewarded with you know talented genes or not. Um, but it becomes in- increasingly important to uh, um, fight inequality in terms of financial means. If you end up in a situation where technology allows you to, you know remove the luck out of whether you get good genes or not if you can pay your way into better genes then it becomes increasingly important to you know find a way of distributing uh fortune or financial assets in in the economy as a whole i guess yeah and i mean like 2048 in your world do people actually shift their quote-unquote luck on genes like do we have gene edited people walking the streets that are much more quote unquote lucky because they had parents who paid the bill of gene editing or even governments who paid the gene of gene editing. Uh, so we don't on a wide scale. Um, we, we have access to gene therapy. For instance, the main character, she is suffering from cystic fibrosis and uh, like she had definitely had a stroke of bad luck because her CRISPR Cas9 treatment failed and now she's immune to the vector that would be used to kind of actually cure her disease. But most of her peers, most of the people that are suffering from cystic fibrosis, they are actually cured from that through gene therapy. 
but I don't depict already at 2048 that we would have a, a society where a lot of people are designer babies. Uh, that is not what I'm predicting. Um, I think that we are at that point. We're probably seeing the we're probably seeing the first designer babies, and we have a lot of uh, conversations around the ethics of doing that. And again, that's where I think China will, you know, be more cross. Uh, they they will be able to uh, bend rules faster to achieve progress rather than you know optimizing for it being ethical in all aspects or being fair to everybody. Um, it's important to understand though, even if we haven't introduced it widely yet, uh, much like it's going to be more apparent to everybody uh, in 2048, because that is uh, probably we should, we should tell that. Like I, I look at uh, this development where with AI, where, uh, you know, 2048, we still don't have super intelligent AI in my, my world. Uh, so the, 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 the story is taking place after kind of an economical shift that is, you know, uh, driven by more conventional AI technologies and automation rather than already, you know, uh, artificial general intelligence. Uh, but it's already, even if that's the case, it's of course a lot more apparent to everybody that AI is eventually going to become super intelligent. So it's a, a much more concrete and tangible problem to people than it is today. And the same would go for uh, gene editing and designer babies. It's, it's going to be apparent to people that, you know, Obviously, this is something we have to take a stance on because the technology is is all, all almost ripe now. So we have to uh, have uh, any regulations we want to have around it has to be in place or be in in at least an advanced state of of progress. Yeah, and I think that like looking at then, I mean the peoples of this world. Uh, like we know, we talked a lot about UBI. We talked a little bit about the difference between the like the. You've hinted that there's an uh, like there's a Western and an Eastern model. You, you, we talked a bit about what's different across the different parts of the Atlantic. But if we look at people, like have people actually changed? Do like we have the same communities, tribes, collectives, or has that changed? Have people v changed their view? Because uh, your book, in a sense, is or your books to be, I guess, it there's a very much of a. Uh, like a, the weird, quote unquote, like the Western educated, industrial, rich and de democratic viewpoint of the world, uh, where the family is, a, it's, it's, it's not the most central part. Uh, and I, I'm curious to see, like, has the world also changed in this angle? Yeah, so, so I've tried to kind of create a plausible, uh, you know, vision of the future where we have maintained uh, as much of liberal democracy and liberal economy as we have today, uh, also in the future, and and basically found ways of how society could design like systems and welfare to achieve that, to, to kind of maintain liberal democracy. Uh, so in that sense, it's still very much, you know, uh, humans vote for government situation in the Western world. Um, then again, there are definitely hierarchies in the society, and, and I predict that the, the, the true winners in the economy is, of course, the people who manage to stay relevant on the job market because uh, a lot of, of products and services and goods are going to become so much cheaper that even you know maintained uh, salary on on you know the level that it is today is gonna you know get you much further in the future so uh, i don't think that we will ever get to a point where ubi can completely replace what you would have in in salary from a you know actual job uh, but through food and services becoming much cheaper, it's going to be uh, more straightforward to tax the economy enough to provide for people in order to make them enable them to survive. Uh, but the actual winners are the people who maintains their competitiveness on the job market and, and manage to stay relevant because they are going to be extremely wealthy compared to people that can't hold a job or can't create, create their own businesses. So, uh, in that sense, there's definitely a hierarchy between people who can work and people who can't. Um, and uh, that, again, is, is somehow driving jealousy and xenophobia in society, where, you know, at first, people who migrate to uh, the US and, uh, you know, uh, work in technology, the technology sector, for instance, and, you know, create a lot of value there, they are definitely perceived as an asset to the economy today. But it's it's uh, it's a risky proposition. It might, could easily end up in a situation where 
you know, you really have where, where the xenophobic people actually are proven right in the sense that people are robbing them of their jobs uh, because there's so few of them left. So that is also a kind of uh, motivation to become xenophobic and, and uh, for a nation to shut down immigration, which is, of course, for a fan of, uh, you know, global migration and uh, open borders as myself it's it's uh, it's a bit depressing to think about these matters because there there's so many paths that lead to it being viable and wise for a country to shut down immigration is the is the world more divided are there more castes and hierarchy yeah so europe has done it as well uh, most definitely um and uh as I as I told you in the in the kind of macro vision of the world, there's definitely a, there's definitely a kind of chasm between the Western and the Eastern Eastern Bloc, and I predict somewhat more straightforward movement between nations within those blocks. So if you're if you come from a country where you have UBI, it's easier to be allowed to move into a country that also has UBI because you have less of a kind of uh, incentive to move. In order to access a UBI system, if you are provided for even in your starting place, uh, but Ariel Valentin, who is the protagonist of, of of my story, she has been living in the U.S. for ten years, uh, and uh, from her point of view, as far as she can tell, she is actually like formally entitled to be able to become a U.S. citizen, but she uh, she didn't apply for citizenship as soon as she could because us had already kind of retracted on allowing uh, dual uh, citizenship so if she opted to become a us citizen she would have lost her swedish citizenship so that's why she kind of waited when she had a chance and along the way to reform essentially what happened when a xenophobic government took charge in, in in the us in the early 2040s Basically, they just in practice stopped handing out citizenships, even when people were formally entitled to them. They just kind of created bottlenecks in the system, so they weren't in practice being uh, allowed anymore. And uh, so, in that sense, she is in a judicial judicial limbo where she thinks that she has the she's entitled to use citizenship, but she isn't a citizen. And as the kind of processes went on in terms of extraditing uh, foreigners, she is basically, uh, you know, in a limbo where she don't know whether she will have the right to stay or whether she will be, you know, uh, uh, extradited at with, with no, uh, with no previous warning. And at the very outset of the story, that is exactly what happens. And at first glance, it appears to be a coincidence, but as the story goes, it turns out that probably it wasn't a coincidence at all, and probably that was the best thing that could actually happen to her, because she happens to have the world's most powerful surveillance agency uh, chasing her, and uh, the, extradition, the extradition turned out to be a very fortunate uh, order of events for her. I'd love to double-click on the global differences here. How, how have people changed across the globe? Yeah, so I, I picture like the, the Eastern way is more about collectivism and then looking at uh, like family and society as a whole uh, when optimizing for goods, Whether whereas the, the Western way is more individualistic and it's a lot about promoting the individual's kind of liberties and, and rights. So in that sense, that is kind of the, the starting point for uh, the, the two models, if you like. Um, so how this, how, how have people changed? I, I, so the Western world is very much fighting, uh, or, or they are trying to make up with their kind of Lutheran ideals of, uh, you know, the virtue of, of hard work. Um, so from a kind of financial point of view and material point of view, uh, we've already lost out to the Lutheran ideals. If, if people can't provide for themselves, then they have to provide it for uh, through some other means. Um, and what does that do with people? Well, you have one group of people who just scramble to do whatever they can to stay relevant in the job market and have a job as they would today. 
uh, still in this world. And of course, they're going to have to work even harder than uh, than they have to do today to stay relevant in that sense. Um, you have another group of people who are actually starting to kind of transition mentally into and adapting to this context and actually are having a good time. Like finally, they, uh, they have a lot of leisure time and they can lead a pretty good life uh, without having to, you know, do anything they don't really want to. Uh, and... Uh, like step by step, little by little, the stigma is of course lifted from that. So there, there's also a lot of happy people that are, uh, you know, having good lives in the system. But then you have also other kind of jokers and other groups that are not really tying into these two main uh, main main threads. Uh, so for instance, Ariel, she has she gets a very unexpected help from this kind of neo Amish movement on this countryside in Sweden. Uh, who is, they've kind of opted, they, 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 they struggled so much to find meaning in this world where they didn't cons- like produce anything meaningful for themselves. So they have used their UBI to move out on the countryside and basically mo- uh, use the money that they get from the government to buy seeds and tools and whatever to, uh, to run farming in a more conventional way than is otherwise the norm in, in 24 days. So they are kind of doing 20th century style farming on the countryside in Sweden and use all their UBI to put themselves into a position where they then had to work their asses off to get, actually get food on the table. Uh, and in a sense, what they're doing then, what they're buying for their UBI is, is basically they're they are buying a reason to be. They are, they are buying a job in a sense. And it's even explicitly stated like that in the book. So they are actually like paying to be allowed to work and yeah, if, if that's what's lacking in your life and that's the, 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 the like straightest route to happiness, then why not? Like, I, I actually think that we will have people like that who will be prepared to pay to find, to be allowed into a context where they have to do something to just be able to survive because then, then they you know, have less time to ponder the grander questions and they can just, you know, get by as people have done through the ages up until now. So there is, uh, there's definitely alternate versions of how you can live in this world. And, and But are they paying to feel useful or are they paying to be part of a community? So they have to pay into the community because the community uses that, uh, that money to buy uh, the seeds that they need uh, to buy, you know, whatever, I mean, and the, the society and the community that they're part of is trying to achieve self-sustainability, but of course they can't be 100% self-sustainable. They need to, uh, you know, buy tools to uh, uh, transform traditional tractors and farming tools into, you know, electric versions, and they have to buy, you know, parts to repair them, etc. So they aren't 100% self-sustaining. They need the, the UBIs of their members to be able to have society like run because of course the farming that they're doing is less efficient than the, the grand scale farming that's happening elsewhere. So if they just wanted to buy food, they could get that food cheaper than if they bought the, the means to produce the food themselves. Uh, so what they are in, in practice effectively actually paying for is you know the job of them working in the fields to put food on the table. Um, they could have, a, from a material sense, higher quality life elsewhere if they use the UBI for what most people use it for. But the, the people living in this community have, have opted differently because, you know, it, as part of this community, they have something they have to do on a daily basis and they have to work hard. And they have realized that that actually makes them happier uh, than, you know, their old lives. Where, where they use the UBI more directly to just, you know, live, live good lives. Mm. And is this a widespread phenomenon? Because, I mean, in the book, we, we, we meet one of these communities, but do people strive to be, to be part of communities differently than they do today? Because, I mean, today work is, wanting it or not, it is a part of the community. It's where people, a lot of people meet their to-bes. It's where a lot of people find, like, you know, it's a rhythm of their day. Have people figured out another way to doing that? Uh, so I, I wouldn't say it's widespread. I, I think most people will obviously not opt for this lifestyle. Uh, but I think it's widespread in the sense that there are communities like that in most of the countries. Uh, 
So they have definitely peers in other countries as well, and probably more peers in Sweden that aren't part of the story. Um, but yeah, I can you repeat the question? What was the other part of the question? If people who haven't opted out of the like normal economy and taking their UBI to kind of create their own job, have they figured out another way to create um, a community around themselves? Or is it so that like what has replaced the work community is essentially my question. Right, right. Yeah, so obviously, I, I mean, what I think will happen is that if people have time on their hands and they have found, you know, found a way of uh, achieving happiness somehow, probably that is, you know, you know, if people have time on their hands and the means to, to do it, they tend to explore their hobbies uh, and they uh, probably find new hobbies and more hobbies if they, you know, have more time on their hands. Um, I definitely have a lot of hobbies that I wish I could put more time into, but I, I don't today because I, you know, I, I fool myself that I have to work. Um, so, so, um, I think that we will see more of that. I haven't explored that in detail. So I'd, I'd be curious to know. I mean, I know you've read my book. It would be, I'm, I'm very curious. What, what do you think? Like, what do you think people are doing? I don't know. That's like, I think that that's, the, I think is the interesting question. Also uh, looking at it more widespread is I think that, you can. I think that the. It's so easy to extrapolate the world we have today, where if you chase a scarcity, I mean time, and you're suddenly given that scarcity in abundance, it's 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 hard to predict because like we we use with our current cultural eyes. I think it's like what happened with food scarcity, um, which was a big thing for many thousand years. When food is not scarce, people become obese, um, and it would be interesting to and also. Uh, what luxury is is for sort of handcrafted food and, and very sort of intricate ways of serving them um and like you know beef being shipped from 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 japan and like you know and st stuff are very, very very complicated where we're obviously wasting resources and it would be curious to see what happens when suddenly we get the same thing with time would suddenly luxury be to waste your time um or would to show people that i i can i can waste my time completely or would, would luxury be uh to be sh to show that i'm i'm sacrificing my ubi and i'm putting it into this community to work because that then you're throwing away your scarce resource or is 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 luxury uh, like being manic about your hobby because like you don't need to right you could just be playing computer games what is luxury what is status in a new world where suddenly you're being paid to exist mm. Yeah, sure. And I think there's many different routes to status, right? Depending on which like community or context you want to go into. So I think like, so the, again, if you look at the kind of left wing and right wing view of UBI, like a lot of the kind of right wing arguments against this is that, well, people will just, you know, stay at home and, you know, masturbate or play Xbox all day. And the left wing kind of arguments for uh, UBI is usually that like, well, there's a lot of people that, you know, could like perform more productive and better, uh, or creatively more, uh, valuable, more value to, to society if they weren't, you know, tied to this, uh, you know, low paying job all the time. Um, and I think both of these arguments are actually correct. I think we're going to see more, you know, more companies be founded. We're going to see more artists and more musicians uh, doing better work if people don't have to worry about how to provide food on the table. Uh, but I also think we're going to see a lot more people, you know, not doing anything, you know, objectively constructive, but they can actually find joy in just playing Xbox. Um, I, I have kids at home and, you know, in a way I see them as like wealthy in time. <laughs> They have a lot more time on their hands. And what do they use their time for? Well, they tend to chase gratification, right? So video games is very good at providing instant gratification or, you know, any kind of gamified process is very good at, you know, attracting their attention. And they struggle then hard and compete hard for social status within, you know, their peers that have, have opted to use their time in the same way. So whether that is, you know, being a kick-ass Fortnite player or whether it's, you know, being the Instagram uh, um, or YouTuber uh, with, with, you know, most followers, 
that that may differ for different people and i think we're going to see all of the above and i guess we're going to see a lot of people double down on whatever their interest happens to be if they have more time on their hands and you know they can just do whatever they they want to i think if you're striving for mastery i think that i wonder if people's view on that strive will change if they don't have to strive I, I mean, looking at myself, just like, I mean, I'm the test group of one here, but I think that definitely things that I have be become a lot better at over the years, I have achieved through a combination of being very passionate about it, but also having had to spend a lot of time figuring it out and not having to had to do it because um, because of my passion led me there. But also if I didn't do it, then the project would fail, my income would disappear, I would no longer be able to employ people and so on and so forth. And I think in a world where th that sort of the the whip part of, of your motivation so is gone, the question is if that's going to disappear. Yeah, well, I I think there's also a fine uh, fine line between a hobby and and a work or a job, even in this new economy. So, I mean, uh, even the current economy. I'm not sure if you're mentioning that contemporary or like in the 2048 version of it. Yeah, but so, sure, we already have it today. If you if you want to be a YouTuber, you know it's uh, you know there's if you take the power law of the internet or you know Chris Anderson's long tail graph, and you realize that okay, there's the tail has grown a lot, the the head has grown a lot as well, and the people struggling are the ones who used to be in the middle who could, you know, way back there it was easier to be a professional musician than it is today. But you know the best paid musicians are actually making more money than ever before. Uh, and there's also a lot more musicians because the cost of producing music is just less than it used to be. So the tail has grown. And of course, if you introduce UBI into the mix, then you have essentially provided for all of the people in the tail to be full-time musicians. So they can, they can actually do that. Uh, of course, we still don't have more time, I guess, to consume music or well, I guess perhaps we have that as well. But uh, at least it's not going to be more people making money off of doing music in this future world. Uh, but doing that, or, you know, if you're looking again, looking at my kids, if they want to play video games all day, or if they want to become YouTubers or whatever, uh, I think they could motivate themselves into living like, I'm going to be this YouTuber because I have these uh, idols that have really succeeded and become the kind of global smash hits. And they are actually making a lot of money off of being that you know global celebrity um, and in that sense i can do this which is really my hobby and doesn't provide anything uh, financially at this point but i do it with the dream of becoming that global uh, 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 influencer that you know is a global celebrity and makes makes a lot of money off of it and i think that is probably what's going to happen to most of the hobbies right whether you are going into you know skiing that i do or like whatever hobby you have probably is going to be a little and a kind of the, the, the actual elite the very best are going to make money off of doing that even in the future so you could aspire to be that person even if you're doing it purely for you know hobby reasons to begin with i think in a sense i think your your book is is a question also about like social libertarianism where like people are provided for uh but 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 both up and down, uh, like uh, we're thinking we're thinking about both the um, maximizing benefit, but also making sure that people are not uh, faring ill. But uh, but but in a sense, we're already living that world in a sense today, even if it's very unevenly distributed, as you already mentioned, like with yourself. But also just looking at society in general. I mean, some of the people worst off in the Western society are still better off than the, the richest kings five hundred years ago. But still, like we're not happy. Uh, I'm not sure if the the kings of of the uh, 16th century were happy. Uh, I don't like we haven't got good NPS scores of the populations either, so we don't know if they're happy. But the question is, like, do you think that people in this future, in this like UBI infused future, are they? Is it is it a better world? And no. So again, repeating myself from from before, like I fear this transition a lot because I think it's gonna put a lot of the matters at hand on its head. Like it's, uh, I I tend to think agree with research that states that uh, happiness is not a function of like your absolute level of material wealth. It's rather 
function of the pace of improvement. So if you have, it's, it's kind of the derivative of your material uh, surroundings. So if you, if you perceive that things are getting better fast, then you're very happy, even if you're at an absolute level, still on a low level. Um, and um, where's that taking me? Um, so, so I mean, you're saying so, I mean, you're saying a hedonic treadmill problem here is that people people are unhappy because even if it would flat out their happiness level, and you know they're they're as uh, they're they're happy on a one point one to five scale, they're a five star happy. Very quickly, they will perceive themselves to be a three point five star, and then a year later, they're going to be a three star, and then they're going to be a two point five star, and they're going to be unhappy perceived so because their happiness hasn't improved. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to be honest, like we probably need to pay more attention to Buddha and Buddhism to find happiness than we have to solve kind of the design of UBI. UBI in itself will not make people happy, I think. Rather, we're going to have the opposite. And, uh, you know, it's, it's more uh, finding it within yourself of not chasing improvement uh, is probably a better route to happiness than you know, achieving continual improvement because you're never going to be satisfied. Um, I like for my own personal like situation, I, I know that I kind of use my lack of satisfaction. Like I'm, I'm not satisfied without what I have, even though I have a lot, uh, I kind of use that as a way of motivating myself to work hard with stuff that I think is meaningful to do. Uh, so even though I have many friends who are a lot more into, you know, meditation and buddhism than i am and i can see that probably in a sense they are probably happier than i am i kind of enjoy uh creating big stuff so much that i i want to and I, I i find that i need the uh the strive of uh, i need to strive for progress all the time to do that so i kind of i don't want to remove that uh motivation i instead i kind of use that unhappiness if you like uh to motivate myself to work hard even if i think i'm already aware that a, a kind of straighter route to happiness would be to you know do something about that root cause instead <laughs> 